Hello, and welcome to Starting the States, Episode 7, Part 2 of Native Americans in North America. Last time, I spoke about the difficulty of engaging in public discussion about the story and treatment of Native Americans in the United States, and I presented my opinion for why I believe this is the case. We then turned to how archaeology has helped us better understand the very complex and diverse history of Native Americans in North America. In an effort to piece together the story, archaeologists have often had to rely on creating broad cultural theories to explain changes in a timeline that spans millennia. It is a difficult task that generations of archaeologists have struggled with. As a result, theories are not set in stone, and they are continuously debated. For the purposes of this episode, we are going to look at how archaeologists have divided up similar Native American cultures into broad tracts of land, known conveniently as cultural areas. They were created based on archaeological evidence that suggested shared or similar cultural traits among people living within the area. Most agree that there are 10 main cultural areas, the Arctic, Subarctic, Great Plains, Eastern Woodlands, Southeast Woodlands, Californian, Great Basin, Southwest, Northwest Coast, and Plateau. We will be looking at each cultural area by traveling through the North American continent from the East Coast all the way to the West. It should be noted that some of these cultural areas stretch into Canada and Mexico, but we will strictly be focusing on the United States. Our primary focus will be the time period of each cultural area that shows the greatest distinction between cultures. Doing so will help us see the individual characteristics that make each region unique. Because of this, we will mostly be looking at the latest period in each cultural area. If I went through the entire timeline of each culture, it would be a long, long time before I got back to talking about the states. I may decide to dedicate future episodes to a deeper examination of the timeline, but for now, this is all I am doing. Now here comes the fun part. Ready to be confused? Good, because here we go. The cultural areas I just described are subdivided into cultural stages that are in chronological order, starting with the earliest archaic humans all the way to the modern or woodland period with first contact with Europeans. Within each of these time periods are what archaeologists call traditions. Traditions describe an artifact type, architectural style, economic or art style of a specific culture that influenced the development of future Native American cultures. With me so far? Tradition and the word culture are sometimes used interchangeably, so just to keep things simple, when I say culture, I'm referring to one of the main North American cultural areas I just described, such as Arctic or Eastern Woodland. When I say tradition, I'm referring to a specific culture that grew within that area and greatly influenced the development of future societies within the same area. To simplify things, the first tradition I will mention is called the Mississippian tradition. This tradition is part of the Eastern Woodlands cultural area. Are you still with me? Good, I'll take your silence as a yes. One last thing before we get started. I highly recommend you pull up a map of North America from the internet. Doing so will help you see the cultural areas I'm talking about. If you are driving or do not have immediate access to a map, just try and imagine a visual representation of the continent in your mind's eye. I will also be uploading an image of these cultural areas to Twitter for convenience. To start us off, we're going to be looking at the Eastern Woodlands culture. 
The eastern woodlands refers to the entire area of the United States east of the Mississippi River. For the sake of time, we will be combining the northeast and southeast culture into the broad category of eastern woodlands. On your map or in your mind's eye, imagine the northeastern and southeastern parts of the United States. Think of the east coast states, stretching from Maine all the way down to Florida. From there, go west into Alabama and Louisiana. Then head north along the Mississippi River until you get to Missouri. This is where our story begins. Arguably one of the most important traditions for the southeastern woodlands is the Mississippian tradition. It was the product of a series of trends that gradually influenced its development, ultimately climaxing in its very creation. Archaeologist Judith Bentz writes that, quote, The Mississippian way of life was characterized by cultures with subsistence strategies that produced a surplus to support chiefdom level of social organization, end quote. Agriculture became a primary mode of subsistence, consisting of the cultivation of maize, squash, sunflower, gourds, and beans. The emergence of maize agriculture throughout the southeast provided a food surplus and safety net for complex social organization to grow. As more Mississippian communities relied on agriculture, the need for larger and broader community organization increased, resulting in the development of chiefdoms. These chiefdoms were headed by local kin leaders, whose authority depended largely on their ability to balance their politics with their ability to distribute food and resources. Within most chiefdom-level societies, there were usually only two basic social classes, the elites and the commoners. Only individuals from the chief's family could be considered elite, and the only way to earn elite status was to be born into it. Religion also played a critical role in Mississippian society. Their belief system emphasized ancestor worship, war, and fertility. Bentz points out that, quote, while ancestors are important to all kin groups, they are especially important to the chiefly elite in chiefdoms, because ancestors are the source of power and authority, end quote. From here, large exchange networks linked countless Mississippian communities together, Trade flourished, and specialized roles such as full-time crafters and potters began to emerge in society. Some centers of trade became so vital to the economy that they grew into large population centers, mirroring a small city. One of these centers is called Cahokia. The site of Cahokia lies near where the city of St. Louis is today. It became the center of a complex religious and political system that united communities around the greater Cahokia region. The people that lived there erected over 100 earthen mounds of various sizes and shapes. The largest of these mounds is called Monk's Mound, and is the largest known earthwork mound structure built by Native American peoples. It is 100 feet high and covers 16 acres. They worked tirelessly hauling earthen material and baskets to build the structure. To better understand the scale of this project, of the 100 mounds built at Cahokia, about half of all earth used to build them went to Monk's Mound. After its completion, Monk's Mound was used for burial and ceremonial practices. The remains of over 50 young people in a pit nearby have led some archaeologists to believe that they were victims of sacrificial practices. Walls and watchtowers were constructed around the site, suggesting that only people of higher status were allowed to enter the complex. Most Native American societies are often thought of as egalitarian or equal among those living in it, 
But Cahokia provides an interesting example of how centralizing power and trade can create a highly stratified society. Its demise is still debated, but during the 13th century, the governing institutions of Cahokia broke apart, likely the result of economic and political turmoil. The Mississippian tradition fundamentally influenced the development of all cultures in the southeast woodlands. It introduced a specific agricultural subsistence strategy that most peoples living in the southeast utilized. The cultivation of crops provided the framework for stratified chiefdom-level societies to grow. Chiefdom leaders used religious and ceremonial practices to legitimize their power, resulting in the construction of complex mound structures. The Mississippian ceremonial complex belief system and the mound building that accompanied it spread throughout the southeast and was even documented by Europeans. The Mississippian tradition had an impact on the development of Native American society in the southeast like no other, and while not every society adopted this way of life, Bence rightly stresses that most did. Now, we're going to turn our attention from the southeastern to the northeastern woodlands. On your map, virtual or otherwise, starting from Cahokia in Missouri, we head north along the Mississippi River, turning east towards the Great Lakes, and heading into western New York and greater New England. The northeastern woodlands culture continues to remain poorly defined. Unlike the southeast's Mississippian tradition with Cahokia, there is no smoking gun that can be pointed to as a center of importance for the cultural development of northeastern peoples. It is possible that one exists, but archaeologists just have not found it yet. What has been found is archaeological evidence suggesting that northeastern societies changed very little from earlier archaic times. Excavations of early northeastern sites have revealed artifacts that are similar to ones found farther west, suggesting that trade may have played an important role. Cultural ideas were also passed through trade and led to burial practices in the northeast that were similar to those from Ohio and the Mississippian tradition. Horticulture developed early and was critical for the development of many northeastern societies, but not all. Those living on the coasts of northern New England and Maine remained hunter-gatherers and specialized in finding plants and seafood for subsistence, a way of life that continued for some coastal communities well beyond European contact. Knowledge of the history and diversity of northeastern peoples is immense and its understanding is largely incomplete. But the evidence we do have confirms that placing Native Americans into broad categories is ultimately a fruitless task. No case demonstrates this better than the case of the Northern Iroquois. Their origin is so hotly debated that archaeologist Brian Fagan calls it one of the major controversies in all of North American archaeology. The reason for this has to do with the geography of specific language groups. Just like the cultural areas in North America, archaeologists and anthropologists have also divided the continent into broad areas based on language. If you Google search a map of major North American language groups, you will see that the Iroquoian language exists smack dab in the middle of Algonquin speakers on the east coast and those in the interior on the west. Fagan asserts that, quote, every linguistic expert agrees that the Iroquoian language distribution represents an ancient intrusion of a different linguistic group in the Northeast, end quote. Because of this, archaeologists continue to argue over how a distinct people came to occupy land directly in the middle of the historically strong and sophisticated Algonquin. 
Theories attempting to answer this question have ranged from suggesting they migrated from the south to they have always been there. Even though their origin is up for debate, most agree that it more than likely happened in the very distant past. I will come back to this debate at the end of the episode, but for now, let's look at some defining characteristics of the Iroquois. Before I begin, I want to quickly point out that academics have almost entirely moved away from dating the human timeline using BC and AD. AD is the abbreviation for Anno Domini, which is Latin for in the year of the Lord, referring to Christ's birth, and BC means before Christ. Using Christianity as the framework for dating the entirety of human experience is pretty silly, and dates back to a time when history was solely told from a Eurocentric perspective. Today, most use CE, meaning Common Era, and BCE for Before Common Era. I'm about to use CE, so I thought it would be useful to point out why. Okay, so between 1000 CE and European arrival, Iroquoian society continued to change and evolve. Maize agriculture became an increasingly important subsistence strategy. It created the stability necessary for populations to increase and communities to grow. As a result, longhouses became larger and were built closer together. Fagan believes this was done to preserve the labor necessary to build village defenses along a larger area. The increasing size of villages brought originally dispersed populations closer together, leading to competition for food and eventually warfare. To combat this, the Iroquois instituted village councils that would act as representatives for clans that came into dispute. After 1400 CE, distinct cultural differences began to emerge between the Iroquois. Fagan points out that differing pottery styles, burial practices, and house types show that major divisions were taking place. This led to an increasingly complex political structure that followed the development of independent Iroquois nations. As Europeans came into the picture, the Iroquois nations began to work together and form confederacies. Arguably the most famous confederacy was the League of Nations in modern-day New York, and made up of the five nations, Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Oneida, and Mohawk. However, many archaeologists argue that these confederacies developed much earlier than the arrival of Europeans. Fagan writes that the confederacies were adaptive because they allowed groups to legislate against unnecessary blood feuding while still maintaining an individual, cultural, and political identity. So it makes sense that as similarities between the Iroquois societies began to diverge, confederacies were utilized to maintain commonality among the individual nations. By European contact, the Iroquois depended heavily on agricultural and hunting elements. Many held the same ceremonial and religious practices. Their complex grouping of tribes, nations, and confederacies speaks to their sophistication in developing and maintaining complex social relationships. This truth undoubtedly helped them maintain a foothold against European intrusion in the Northeast. I hope our look at the Northeast and Southeastern woodlands culture has provided a better understanding of the indigenous people that inhabited this land prior to the creation of the United States. The information I have shared with you is due to the hard work of archaeologists who have worked tirelessly to uncover the story of Native Americans in North America. While they have been extraordinarily successful at uncovering the complex history of indigenous people, there are limits. 
That is why I mentioned I was going to come back at the end of the episode to the many theories attempting to explain the origin of the Iroquois, and how most agree that it happened in the distant past. I'm doing this because it identifies a broader point I've been trying to make for the past two episodes. What the Iroquois origin example highlights is the futility of looking at the development of culture through an evolutionary framework. Archaeologists have spent decades trying to identify the specific time the Iroquois originated. They have used what Brian Fagan calls a, quote, standardized cultural historical formulation, end quote. It is an attempt to separate stages in cultural development by using changes in artifact styles, such as pottery, to show change over time. To understand this, imagine the steps on a ladder. Each step shows an evolution or change in culture, progressing from the bottom of the ladder to the very top. Fagan rightly points out that this way of thinking is like an outdated straitjacket that makes researchers think narrowly. The reason I have come back to this time and time again is because I am trying to make the point that placing Native American history into a broad evolutionary framework that relies on interpretive knowledge of cultures will never provide a completely accurate portrayal of the past. We will likely never know the origin of the Iroquois, just like we will likely never know what caused the demise of Cahokia. This is one of the main reasons why telling the story of indigenous people in North America is an extremely difficult undertaking. It does not come with the same written record that I and historians have been fortunate enough to utilize for telling the story of the United States. However, all is not lost. The use of interpretation to understand the past is actually a freedom for archaeologists that historians do not have the luxury of using. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Didn't you just say that interpretive knowledge of cultures will never provide a completely accurate portrayal of the past? Alright, hold on, let me explain. Imagine you come across a penny from the United States, but you have no prior knowledge about the country, their currency, or the people that live in it. Examining the penny, what can it tell you about that society? Perhaps the date on the penny shows that society has a numerical system. The word liberty shows they have a writing system. Maybe Honest Abe's beard suggests facial hair holds some symbolic importance in the United States. That interpretation is factually correct, and was made without prior historical knowledge about the society. But in order to prove it, archaeologists must develop new questions and find new evidence to prove their interpretations are correct. On the other hand, historians must rely on hard facts to understand the past. It is not that interpretation is never accurate. It is just that the amount of evidence needed to validate it can be nearly impossible to ascertain. Archaeologists understand that they may never answer every question they have, but it is their drive and motivation to do so that makes their work so important to helping us understand the distant past. As long as they continue to uncover more evidence to support their conclusions, their sometimes broad interpretations will continue to narrow and begin to unravel the secrets in our human story. I hope you have enjoyed this brief two-episode introduction to the history of Native Americans in North America. While researching these episodes, I realized it makes more sense to discuss the cultural areas west of the Mississippi as our state timeline brings us to it. So, as the United States expands west, we will also expand our look at the indigenous people of North America. Next time, we finally head down south to Georgia. I promise I mean it this time. But unlike the devil, we will not be looking for a soul to steal. Instead, we will be looking at the history that led up to Georgia becoming the fourth state to ratify the Constitution. 
If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you access your podcast from. Your rating and review lets me know what you think of the show, and it makes it visible to a wider audience. It takes very little time and effort, but can have a huge impact on this show's success. Whatever you decide, thank you for your continuing support. Have a question or comment? Send me an email at startingthestates at gmail.com. You can also stay up to date on all things podcast related by following the show at Twitter at StartTheStates. The song you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is Jam With Me by Mont Placer. As always, thank you for listening to another episode of Starting the States.